Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. In this episode of This Pathological Life, we're looking at pharmacogenetics today. And Dr. Travis Brown, I've been looking at the running sheet and I I appreciate your candor because like many other uh, medical students who have talked to me about drugs during our college, you're going to talk about struggling with drugs as you were learning. Is that <laughs> the the non-illicit type, or you know, the you know, <laughs> yeah, I am. This was this was an area I struggled with in in study. I, I look, I, I studied a few different areas before, but anatomy, physiology makes sense to me. Pharmacology didn't. I genuinely struggled with you know. People that, you know, you would have actually, you know, studying, you'd have pharmacy students and, uh, you know, people that had lived it for a few years knew all about it. You know, they knew all the terms, you know, pharmacokinetics and, you know, you talked about things like absorption, distribution, metabolism, you know, elimination, you know, rate of clearance. And and I often find I struggled in that area. And I I do remember, you know, toxicology lecturers coming in and they were pharma, you know, had a pharmacology background and, I mean, I remember sitting there thinking, you know what, in med- you know, medicine, what we need is actually the toxicologist to teach, you know, renal disease, a cardiologist to, to teach neurology. You, oh. Because when you, get the, when you get the specialist in an area who knows everything, who's been studying it for 10, 15 years, works in the field, it's sometimes hard to know what you need to know as a student. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know if you, if you would ever advocate the, a non-specialist teaching a specialist area. Uh, look, I wouldn't actually. Uh, I'm trying to think the the English philosopher uh, whose name's escaping me at the moment. He he argued his name will come to be shortly that you should always listen to a specialist in their field, but then hold them up to great tra- uh, investigation when they're talking outside their field. Well, but I get your point. Yeah. It takes them out of the comfort zone yeah. uh, to get to the core things you need versus going deeper yeah. because they can. Well, and the, the the whole reason is because as soon as you become the specialist, complexity can actually, you know, fill the field. And yes. you're like, well, I just want to know, to not, yeah. I don't kill someone when I'm a junior doctor. Bertrand Russell was who I was paraphrasing there. Yeah. Now, let's move on from your admission that you studied <laughs> pharmacology, but you didn't inhale. <laughs> Uh, how do we set this up for pharmacogenetics? So, so what what we what we need to do, like when you the the interesting thing, so setting it up, drugs in things like cardiology, you have a whole bunch of drugs like statins, antihypertensives. In psychiatry, we have antidepressants, antipsychotics. When you would sit with the GP, you would actually see a patient that would have the whole range, an A4 list of patient of of drugs for that patient, and. You know, to the point of saying, you know, there's drug interactions. So I admire that clinicians could be able to manage this on a daily level. And then there is one part when we're looking at pharmacogenetics. So this even gets more complex that there's things about the patient sitting in front of you will be metabolizing that drug that you've prescribed for them. And so the the mechanism we talk about is a cytochrome P450. So drugs are metabolized through this, these set of enzymes. 
And look, there's a whole range of them. We don't need to know them at the moment. We'll ask Graham what we need to know about them. But what it comes down to is when you're sitting across from a patient and you actually have to prescribe them a medication, are they going to metabolize it well? Are they not going to metabolize it well at all? Where do they sit on this spectrum? And and look, this is where I need to to ask Graham because again, in pathology, we don't we're not prescribing many drugs, but this is relevant to clinicians for the patient sitting in front of them. Well, you've set that up well. Let's get Graham in from the green room. Let's continue our journey into understanding pharmacogenetics now, and who else would we turn to? Director of Genetics at Sonic Pathology, Professor Graham Southers. Welcome back to This Pathological Life. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. I want to ask the obvious question uh, for this part of the program. How did pharmacogenetics emerge? It's an interesting story and it goes back over a hundred years now. So if you put yourself back in the early 1900s, Doctors were beginning to recognize that Mendel's principle of genetics, you might remember uh, dwarf and tall peas from uh, some high school genetic uh, lessons from a long time ago. But doctors began to recognize that this actually was relevant in, in human disease, not merely in plant breeding. And that was very clear that there were certain structural abnormalities that a child may be born with that were inherited as a what we call a Mendelian single gene phenomenon. But it was Galton who recognized that some of the changes in body chemistry were also governed by these single gene effects. And he identified a number of what we call inherited errors of metabolism, where a child has abnormal body chemistry, and he was able to demonstrate that this was due to the inheritance of uh, an abnormal gene. And that was quite a um, a revolutionary step because we were moving from um, sort of, if you will, binary physical characteristics, something that's abnormal or not, into recognizing that the genes may also regulate things that we, we tended to think had a more uh, variable continuous distribution, that, that the chemistry um, was not just the sum total of lots of things together, well, in a sense it is, but you could have a particular genetic abnormality that caused a particular problem. So that there was genetic variation that accounted for changes in the the variation and the measurement of chemicals that occurred within the body. Right. This is a link between, if you will, binary genetic elements, uh, gene working normally or not, and body chemistry. Right, And that was quite um, an amazing insight at the time and led to an understanding of the whole field of inborn errors of metabolism, which is is a a huge area of paediatric care these days. And that was the the starting point. And the reason I wanted to to go back that early is once you recognize that genes can uh, alter the, the body chemistry, the chemicals that are naturally or should be naturally formed within the body, it raises the possibility that genes may also change how a body um, responds to chemicals from the outside. So if you think of it from an evolutionary point of view, um, that the, the, the toxins, the chemicals that are in the environment, there will be genes that have evolved to help uh, people survive that. And variations in those genes will result in people having different susceptibilities to toxins in the environment. 
And once we've got that far, we can shift from toxins in the environment to the more modern situation of about the medicines, the, the drugs, the medicinal drugs that we take. And it raises the possibility that different people, given the same dose of a particular drug, will end up with a different response because they're handling that exogenous chemical, that introduced chemical, differently to someone who's next to them. And it was only about, uh, it was in the early 1950s uh, and then 60s that there were some uh, clear examples of that uh, were, were published. And I think the, um, the, the neatest one was in the British medical literature where some researchers gave uh, lots of people a dose of isoniazid. It was then a, a very popular drug for TB control. And they were able to demonstrate that if you took healthy adults and uh, gave them an appropriate dose for their weight and so on, the standard dosing, and measured the concentration of isoniazid in their plasma. It wasn't a smooth distribution with most people being in the middle and some people having higher levels and some people having lower levels. No, 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 no. It was a binary distribution. And there were two clear groups. There were those people who had a relatively high level of isoniazid and there were those with a relatively low level of isoniazid and a very clear gap between the two. And that sent the message that we're in fact looking at the same process with isoniazid, uh, an externally introduced chemical, as Galton had identified uh, a number of decades earlier for the, the internal body chemistry. It's an, it, mind you, it's a, also an interesting uh, drug of choice, that one, because that, wasn't that the first antidepressant as well? Is that... Uh... Is that right? The, I, um, you're, you're outside my scope of confidence there, <laughs> Travis. I'll need to, to leave you I, at that point. No, from, uh, from memory, I just know uh, it was reading the first, the first antidepressant was a TB drug, and they found some of the uh, levity of the patients uh, were coming through. They were actually being a little bit, uh, th and that was the, I think it might have been that drug. I'll have to check it out. And so that yeah, was the first okay, antidepressant. Well, <laughs> oh, different Hooray! aside. Yeah. I, I, it could be just that they were getting TB therapy. Might well, be, yeah. Be that that yeah. So, so. With this, you know, these two binary uh, elements, the, the, these patients that had high levels and low levels, where did that take them? Where did that they did they start to go? Oh, okay, is it this drug or is it all drugs? Did did they actually start to go? How did they actually use that information to find out more? So the striking insight from this observation about isoniazid was that individual genes can have a significant impact on how a drug is handled in the body. And without knowing at that point what the genes were involved or indeed the potential scope of this field, the prescient authors introduced the term pharmacogenetics. So this term has been around for about 70 years now and is, is that whole field of how genes and drugs interact or to put it another way, how not all people are created the same. And that the same drug uh, given to a group of people is not going to elicit this necessarily the same response. Graham, I think if we were doing a soapy, this would be called the cliffhanger moment. Yeah. Why don't we pause there and come back and reopen the curtain and go deeper into this aspect of pharmacogenetics? Okay, thanks, Graham. Look, look, I find this a very challenging area. There's, uh, I've always found drugs and pharmacogenetics and pharmacokinetics uh, difficult to, to get my mind around. 
but when I look into this area, there's a there's a whole list of drugs, uh, you know, a page long of not just drugs, but classes of drugs that this is uh, affects and GPs deal with this every day. And the list keeps on getting longer. So what is the best way for, for a GP to approach this area, knowing the complexity that it, that it brings up? So it's a good question, Travis, and it actually touches on, uh, I think, many fields of, of healthcare, not just uh, pharmacogenetics, because the amount of information that we now have available is radically greater than it was even uh, one to two years ago. And um, I've been in the, the, the medical game now for about 40 years, and uh, it's, you know, I, I realise with some chagrin how out of date some of my treasured memories from medical school are because the world has changed. And I think it is increasingly difficult to expect that a practitioner in any field of healthcare, now there's a bold statement, mm-hmm. that, that any practitioner can keep up with all the things that are happening and relevant in their field with their frontal lobe alone. I think we need help to make this work. And that means that we need to be able to use information technology uh, wisely and effectively without surrendering the human dimension to our decision making and, and clinicians need to remain accountable uh, for the decisions they make and also compassionate for the people they care for. But I think it is appropriate that we start to looking to other um, informatics tools to help us make wise decisions. Uh, that also, by the way, places a very strong obligation on the people providing those informatics tools to ensure that they are fit for purpose and up to date and those sorts of things. So pharmacogenetics is a case in point. This is a, a complex area of healthcare. The demands around the, the types, the diversity of medications that are available has gone kaboom. We also have an increasing awareness of the importance of personalized medicine, that, uh, that indeed we are not all equal. Well, we're not all identical, that we need to uh, be able to tailor the uh, therapeutic uh, response or prescription that we're making to an individual situation. That in principle hasn't, is not new, but doing it for medications is. So all of the medications that are currently in the pharmacopoeia that are available to a doctor to prescribe, the dosing has been developed primarily around what is the average dose that is required for the average person of a particular weight or surface area or however it's been determined. So there is an enormous body of data that treats people as as a group working out the average. And that's very understandable and appropriate in terms of getting something going. But we now have the potential to refine that average dose or that, that average approach to drug selection to fine tune it for the individual. Now for every drug, there are potentially uh, tens of genes and their associated enzymes involved in the metabolism of that. And if we look in the the core uh, literature, if you will, underpinning pharmacogenetics, there is this enormous iceberg of of data, some of which sits above the surface of utility. That is to say, there is sufficient evidence of a clear association that this is worth doing. There's a lot of other data, the bulk of the data, which is this may get interesting as we get more information, but we're not there yet. Even if we concentrate on what's uh, the tip of the iceberg, which is where the really useful stuff is, that itself 
can be tiger country with a lot of stuff. And so even with that degree of selection, we will still need an informatics approach. We cannot expect clinicians to carry this information in their frontal lobes because it is also changing rapidly. Mm. So our fundamental approach to this is to, from, from Sonic's point of view, is to say, we want to provide a service to the doctor who is responsible for prescribing for this patient. And our service is to provide some personalized guidelines, prescribing guidelines, pertinent for this patient. We'll be very happy to show you how we get to those guidelines. So there's no, no sort of hidden stuff, trade secrets at the back of the room or behind closed doors. But we appreciate that, that the uh, prescriber does not necessarily want to know the exact genetic details that we've analysed or indeed the body of literature that has been examined for that. We can certainly present the doctor with both of those bits of information and more if they wish. But what the clinician is primarily after is what do I need to prescribe this patient? Can I use prescribing as usual, or do I need to do something different? Mm. Now, the, there is a, a, a potential problem here. If you come to me and say, look, I've got a patient I want to start on this particular medication, then I could give you a very short report, and it might say something as simple as normal prescribing, normal dosing for this patient, or it might say, avoid this, try something else. And that would be a, a one-off response to address today's particular question. But when we do pharmacogenetics, we're actually sitting on a large body of potentially useful information for this patient down the track. So do we set up a situation where you, the doctor, come back to the pathology laboratory every time you're considering a new medication for this patient? Or do we, in a sense, do a, a, a test once and give you a large body of information to future-proof the value of the report? so that you have information available uh, for down the track. Now, we've chosen to go the future-proofing way so that um, our pharmacogenetics report at the moment uh, will typically run to, to 15 or 20 pages. Most of that is a list of uh, medications for which we can provide clear guidance. And we use a simple traffic light system. Green, doses normal. Um, amber, might need to be careful about the dosing. And, and red, don't touch. And we also then provide specific details about dosing or option uh, guidelines for the, for the amber or red drugs on that list. Now, look, this is very clunky. It is so last century that I feel embarrassed to do it this way because here we have a 21st century test with 21st century information, which we're essentially providing to you on multiple pieces of paper or the electronic version of that. And I wince every time I see the report because that's not the way that we would like to present this. And this is not the best use of informatics. What I would like to see is to have this information embedded in the patient's electronic medical record because the doctor doesn't need to know about all those medications that might be prescribed in the future. The doctor only needs to know information about this particular medication at the point at which it's being prescribed. Graham, does this report have a shelf life or given that it's at the genetic level, is it going to remain constant for a long time? Good question. And the answer is sort of yes, no. <laughs> so the, the genetic um, result will remain uh, fixed so that you do indeed keep have that for life. 
The genetic result could be expanded down the track as we understand more genes that could be in, implicated and where we expand the panel of things that we're testing. But the information that we've already reported should not change. But what can change and will change is the interpretation or the prescribing advice, because this is uh, such a rapidly evolving field. So our reports are necessarily date stamped because they're on paper or the visual equivalent. If we were able to embed this information in the electronic medical record, it would need to be embedded in a dynamic sort of real time fashion so that when in three years time, the doctor says, ah, I'm thinking of prescribing a new medicine, the old genetic information is valid and that can be used. But the, the master database needs to be interrogated at that point to say, what's the 21, 2021 prescription? Just uh, the the list that we we have. So I mean, just to to give listeners just a, a flavour. So we have cardiology drugs talking about statins and beta blockers. There's antidepressants. There there's also uh, things such as uh, proton pump inhibitors. So this is a vast list. And the the question then I have for you, Graham, is a lot of these patients are already on these medications. Uh, a lot of these patients, people are going to be uh, prescribing new drugs. But when is it appropriate for a GP to say, I actually should do this test for the patient in front of me? Should I do it for drugs they're already on or just for ones I'm about to prescribe because there's not a problem, so to speak? A key question with pharmacogenetics is a very practical one. When should it be done? And um, there's no simple answer to that. I mean, I can, can give you trite answers, but there, there are, in fact, a number of contexts in which uh, a doctor could consider doing this test. The first situation is where a patient has some sort of uh, adverse response. There may be toxicity, uh, unexpected toxicity on a standard dose, or, or the, the drug may be uh, ineffective at a standard dose. And where the doctor is wanting to work out, could the underlying pharmacogenetics of this patient explain their atypical response to this medication. So we could call that a reactive approach to pharmacogenetic uh, testing. The second response or the second approach is to say, um, this patient is fine at the moment, but I'm about to start uh, a medication for which we know there are pharmacogenetic implications. For example, one of the, the drugs on the, the, uh, the, the PGX report that, we, that Sonic provides. And so this is, it's proactive, but it's immediately proactive. I'm about to prescribe and I want to know whether this is the right thing to do. Now, in those two situations, there is a particular question being asked um, now, and you can trigger the test, and it will take um, a week or so for that result to, to come back. Um, so there is some inherent delay there. But the advantage of that approach for both of those approaches is the doctor is asking a very specific question and getting a specific response back about a particular medication. So it's a focused question, focused answer, but there is a time delay. And for many prescribing decisions, the clinician does not want to be saying, I'm about to prescribe, but I'll, uh, we'll put that on hold, come back and see me in two weeks. So we appreciate that that's not, not an ideal situation. So the third approach is to undertake what we call preemptive pharmacogenetic testing, which is doing the test before there is any particular plan to prescribe any particular drug. 
But to get this information, particularly the genetic information, into the patient's electronic record, because then when you come to prescribe a drug next week or next year, it's a matter of a moment for the system to interrogate the up-to-date database and say, is this drug a red, amber or green uh, medication and, and to go from there. Now that has the great advantage, the information is immediately available. If it's indeed in the electronic medical record rather than on a piece of paper, it's available to all of the patient's doctors uh, down the track. The downside is that you now have an uncertain period between having the test done and it being paid for by someone and gaining some result from that. So there are a number of major trials underway across the US uh, and Europe looking at preemptive genetic testing to see, to test the, the hypothesis that this is indeed worth doing. There are individual organizations, healthcare organizations in the US uh, and in Europe that are already doing this. And they have uh, put out um, observational studies that say, hey, we identified you know, X percent of people with these things that impacted their prescribing and so on. So there is a plausible case. But for this to be funded uh, by some a national agency of one kind or another will require clear evidence that this has utility. And so we're awaiting the outcome of those studies with great interest. And it would be great to have a study along those lines in Australia, but I'm not aware of any such study. Graham, wow. What I love about this pathological life is we get to cover the nuance not just the tabloid binary responses to things. <laughs> uh, I look I look forward to seeing this evolve over time, as I'm sure everyone listening in will. Uh, we have to leave it there. There is so much further we could go, but this insight I'm hoping will be helpful for many people. So Professor Graham Southers, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.